That introduces us to week three of our series, Lead Like Jesus, where we've been, we've been talking about how to lead better um, because all of us are leaders. And you may not see yourself as a leader, um, but you are a leader because if you can influence someone else, you know, old, young, at work, at home, if you can influence someone else to the point at which they change their behavior in one way or the other, good or bad, doesn't matter, you are a leader. Therefore, what we've been talking about in this series is we are all leaders, and so we want to help you lead better by looking at some principles of good leaders, specifically some principles of leadership that Jesus teaches us. And so that's what we've been doing in this series. So welcome to the series um, as we continue our conversation on how to lead better, how to lead like Jesus. Um, when I was uh, um, a little younger, um, I worked uh, for the Boeing company out in Seattle uh, for a couple of years. And when I was out there, uh, I worked in this one particular role as a project manager. And um, I had an experience in that role that most of you have all experienced in one way or another. It may have looked a little different, um, but more or less the point is still the same. Uh, my team's job... Uh, that, that I was a part of at that time uh, was to manage the software releases to support the production line for Boeing's newest plane at the time. And that plane, uh, I forgot I brought a picture of it, the, that plane at the time, it's not so new anymore, but it was a 787, they called it the Dreamliner. And so our job was to manage all the software updates to support the engineers, to support those people on the manufacturing floor, uh, to be more efficient at, at producing the airplane. And there was a lot to do. There was a lot going on, uh, a lot of releases. And so uh, we would um, essentially make sure the right people were doing the right thing at the right time to get those software updates to uh, the production floor and not mess anything up in the process. And we would do that every day, sometimes in the middle of the night, uh, to make sure things were going smoothly. And so um, one of the most, I don't know, cumbersome parts of this, of this role was you always had to be checking in with all the people that were actually doing the, like the programming and the actual execution of the updates, those kinds of things. And that took a lot of time. You're trying to get a hold of people, you're checking in, all this stuff. And so um, I had an idea. And my idea was, what if we had a dashboard, just like a website that you could go to, and you could see where all these projects were at any given time, so that when people like update uh, the progress of, of the release, you, know, you could see it in one central location. And I thought to myself, well, if we did that, that would save an incredible amount of time. It would save probably a couple hundred thousand dollars a year in company expenses, and it would cut our team's workload collectively like in half, because you wouldn't have to follow up with everybody, just be right there. And I ran that by uh, a coworker of mine. I'm not a very good programmer, uh, but he was. And, uh, and he said, yeah, I could totally do that. So we took it to our manager and the manager said, uh, sure, you can try it, but not on company time. Okay, fine. So he programmed it at night on his own. He got it up and running and it was going so well. Literally, he and I just like would go to work, turn it on, watch the screen, and that's all we'd have to do because it was just so automated and it was, it was, uh, it was really awesome. And um, then, and this is where it becomes really relatable to most of us, is uh, my boss's boss came down and said, what are you guys doing down here? Because you're messing some things up on the back end of the software and stuff. And we said, well, we designed this program, and here's how it works, all this stuff. Well, you can't do that. 
Well, do what? Well, whatever you're doing. Okay, so what do you want us to do? Just stop. Do you want to understand what we're doing? No, but if you want to do it, here's how you're going to have to do it. It's probably going to take you a year or two to, to get it through the right processes and all this kinds of stuff and, and to actually implement it. And so essentially, it stopped the project right there and then. And we kind of got in trouble, my coworker and I. And I couldn't help but sit there and think to myself, what did this kind of leadership say to me? What did this kind of leadership t- say to my coworker? Because we thought we had come up with a pretty good solution. And instead, we got in response, keep your head down, do your work, don't change the status quo. I mean, is that a place that you want to work? Is that a place maybe you have worked in the past and it's been a little frustrating when you experience that? It's frustrating when the leaders around us become the cap to maybe a personal potential, a team potential, or the organization's potential. And it could look a lot, uh, it could come in a lot of different ways, really. Um, some of you, um, you've worked for a leader that really only cared about the money. And so, so long as you were making enough money for the company, for their team, or for their, you know, their goal, you were in their good graces. But as soon as you didn't bring in enough money, you were kind of out. You were on the outside of the team. Or maybe you worked for an owner of a company and they just took all the money that you made for the company and they just took it and took a lot of vacations and all that stuff. And you're like, I'm working really hard so that you can go and spend all this money. I'm not sure this is a good, good relationship here. Or maybe you worked for a team um, or a leader that didn't understand what you even did. Ever had that before? And so they'd make, you know, requests and expectations that didn't really fit or make sense for what you needed to actually get done. And, and you kind of felt like they were a manager, a supervisor, a leader for just the leadership's sake, but not because they actually wanted to help. They didn't really support you. Or maybe you had a leader who never saw you as enough, like you could never do enough. It was never enough. They never celebrated. They never told you what you were doing well. Some, some leaders, uh, you, you had to build up their ego. You know, you kind of had to stroke their ego a little bit. And if you did that, if you were willing to do that, you were the best employee ever. It didn't matter your performance, but if you just said, oh, you're doing such a great job, they'd be like, I like you. Or some leaders uh, lead by fear. They don't understand that there's a difference between respect and fear. And so they just kind of fear everybody into doing what they want. I know I experienced this at another point in my um, career. And uh, we had in one year over 100% of our organization turned over. Some roles three times to get to that 100%. But in one year it turned over because that's what fear-based leadership does. And I think one of the biggest misunderstandings of leadership, one of the the biggest reasons for these things happening in organizations, happening in your workplaces, and frustrating employees, frustrating you, is this one particular thing. And it makes, this one particular thing, it makes really good TV, it makes it really dramatic, but it's not a lot of fun when you actually have to work in real life with it. And it's this right here, this picture. Everybody know what this is? This is a uh, organizational chart. It's very exciting, super exciting stuff right here. And uh, who's this person right here? Anybody? The boss. Yeah, they're the they're the leader. You know what I'm saying? And uh, who's this right here? That's me. You know, <laughs> that's all of you. Us, right? We're down here. Um, some of you, I guess, could be up here. But um, you know, we're we're down here. 
Now this chart does an okay job of understanding who's responsible for what, but the problem with this chart is it's a value system. It communicates value. And you say, well, no, it doesn't. It communicates title and role. That's true, but let's be honest. How much do people on this level make compared to people on this level? It's a pretty big difference. It's a measurable difference. I know simply by income alone how much more valuable this level is compared to this level. And sometimes we don't even have to look at the money of it. You just know that if you're on this level, you're more expendable. You're more replaceable. You're not quite as important. Do you feel better? Would you feel better if you were here or if you were somewhere up here? Would you feel better about yourself if you, you know, kind of had something going on up here or something down here? I think a lot of us, not all of us, but a lot of us would feel better if we felt like we were up here. We felt like we could do more. We felt like it would solve a lot more of the world's problems, our problems, if we were up here. Because this is more important. There, I found this chart in finding, looking for charts. I thought it was a really good example of this and how they called it. They called it the ego chart. And I was like, you know what? That actually kind of explains this one problem of this hierarchy structure. And here's the next slide. It's the hierarchy of ego. Too often, isn't it true that the biggest ego usually sits on top? And then there's everybody down here. And you're at the top of the triangle. You're at the pinnacle right? And this is how we see our daily lives. This is how we see organization. This is how we see value in people, in leadership for that matter. That's why we talked about in the past, you know, you could be the leader at the top, but the truth is everybody's a leader. But this is true. This graph right here, this is true for not just business, not just uh, organizations or companies or nonprofits. This is true for life. This is true for politics. Isn't it true that somebody at the top of politics sits up here and a lot of times has a bit of an ego complex? Isn't it true, even in families, that there is a hierarchy to families? And there's value in that, but the problem is some of us can feel a little too empowered by that and then that, therefore mistreat the people around us in our families. I mean, have you heard of a situation in a family where a parent or grandparent led by fear, led with ego, led out of benefiting themselves and what was most comfortable for them versus the other people in their team or family. You see this all the time. You see this uh, in, in athletic teams. You see this structure uh, in, uh, in, uh, uh, in classrooms. You see this structure. You see this structure throughout life. We, and we have a difficult time seeing it, but it's there. And we often will find ourselves leading like this when given the opportunity. But the problem is this structure leads to hurt. This structure leads to people feeling devalued. This structure leads to people leading with ego or fear or all about the money. And it leads to people quitting their jobs. This is not effective leadership right here. That's why I kind of like the title, a hierarchy of ego. This right there is not how Jesus led. And it's not how we should lead either. Jesus led a different way. And a great example of this was Peter. 
Peter was one of Jesus' closest followers from the beginning of his ministry. One day, Peter's out there fishing with his brother, Andrew. Jesus comes along, and, and uh, Jesus says to them, well, they, they were Simon, who's also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother. They were putting in their uh, nets into the sea, or the lake of Gennesaret, or the lake of Galilee, for they were fishermen. And what did Jesus say? He said, follow me. Follow me. Now think about this moment for a second, because Peter's going to say yes, and Peter's going to start following him, and Andrew's going to start following him. But where would you have put Peter in that org chart? Peter, a fisherman, uneducated, dirty, messy, smelly man. Where would Peter have gone on that chart? It's okay. goes on the bottom, right? That's where you would see a fisherman, not at the top not in the leadership position. But is that where Jesus put Peter? Did Jesus treat Peter like he was on the bottom? Did he just kind of drag Peter along throughout his ministry? No. Jesus put Peter front and center. Jesus expected a lot from Peter. Jesus treated Peter almost as an equal. Jesus went and stayed with Peter's family. Jesus gave Peter an opportunity to grow. There's this great moment. If you grew up in church, you're really familiar with this miracle. Um, and really, honestly, in Western culture today, you're familiar with Jesus walking on water. Well, there's this moment, Jesus is, uh, the, the, the disciples are out on the boat alone. W- wind's kicking up. They're not making any progress across the lake. It, it's dark. And they're starting to get really freaked out. And then they see a man walking across the lake. They think it's a ghost. Finally, they figure out, no, it's Jesus. And Peter has an incredible response to that. Peter, um, they're freaking out, sees Jesus walking. Jesus says, take courage. It's I. Don't be afraid. Peter says, okay, Lord, if it's you, you're walking on water. Tell me to come to you on the water. And what did Jesus say? Come on out. Let's go. Walk on water, Peter. You can do it. She's like, really? Can I though? Is this a good idea? It's an opportunity to grow. Jesus wanted Peter to be successful. Jesus wanted Peter to get out of that boat, walk across the water to him. Jesus had high expectations and hopes and dreams for what Peter was capable of. But what happened? Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. And what did Jesus do? What did Jesus immediately do? Did he go to Peter and say, come on, Peter. All I've asked you to do this whole time is just have a little faith in me. And you couldn't even have that in this moment. Did he get angry with him immediately? Uh Uh-uh. He said, come on, Peter. You're a fisherman. Swim the rest of the way. Come on, buddy. Did, did, did Jesus treat Peter like Jesus was at the top and Peter was at the bottom? And that Peter should have done better. And, he, and, and Peter failed and dropped the ball. Did Jesus try to put the fear of God himself into Peter? Was that Jesus' immediate response? No. Jesus immediately reached out 
his hand and caught him, grabbed Peter and pulled him up. Because, and then he calmed the storm and and relieved everybody's fear. But why did he do that? Because he wanted to help Peter become something greater than he was. And Peter had taken some big steps toward that in that moment. Because Jesus understood what we so often fail to remember or know, that we give in to the traditional organizational charts and then we miss the real principle of leadership. And that is that leaders, good leaders, work for their team, not the other way around. The team doesn't work for the leader. The leader works for the team. The leader is for the team. Christ-like leaders, Jesus-like leaders are for their team. In Jesus' approach, he flips the org chart upside down. In Jesus' approach, it looks a lot like this. The leader is at the bottom. The customer or the level one leaders, the the frontline leaders are at the top. And Jesus' goal is to make sure that everybody else is being successful. That everybody else is starting to win, is starting to get it, is helping to carry the team forward. Leaders empower, leaders strengthen. Good leaders remove roadblocks when their other team members get in the way and they develop their team so that their team can win. One of Jesus' missions, I read a whole book on this. It's called The Master Plan of Evangelism. Totally upended my understanding of why Jesus came to earth and added a whole new level to it. And, and it, essentially his argument was, yeah, did Jesus come to teach God's truth? Yep, he did. Did Jesus come to pay for the sins of the world? Yep, he did that as well. But Jesus came to develop in three years a great team that would change the next 2,000 years. He put his closest followers into situation after situation after situation so that they could grow, they could learn and develop. And Peter was one of those. In fact, Peter was one of the closest to Jesus. Jesus wanted to put the right people in the right places and he did that with Peter. Jesus was the type of leader because he was leading from the ground up, not from the top down, where he looked at Peter and said, I look forward to moving you down the ladder, Peter. Not up the ladder, down the ladder. Because Peter, I see you as a humble and hungry individual. Yes, you're a fisherman. Yes, you're uneducated. Yes, you're kind of smelly. But Peter, I think you could be a great leader in the upside down pyramid. You're probably not going to make it in the Roman Empire, Peter, but you can make it in my kingdom, Peter. And Peter, what did Jesus say when he called him? He said, Peter, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. I'm going to make you the kind of guy who goes out there and changes lives. And Peter literally does that. We read Peter's letters thousands of years later. We see the impact. Historians do not argue the impact that Peter had in the early church. And we're going to look at that in just a second. Even though Peter, you say, well, Jesus, I know the story of Peter. You know, he disavowed Jesus and he doubted Jesus that that, um, even when Jesus was alive, resurrected, he doubted at first, you know. But what did Jesus meet Peter with? He said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, yeah. You read it, John chapter 21. 
then Peter, I need you to care for my people. I need you to feed my people. And I believe, Peter, that you can do that, that you're capable of that. I've been developing you to do that. And if we fast forward in the story, if we jump forward into the book of Acts, which was written by Luke, the, the guy who wrote Luke also wrote the book of Acts or what we call the, the uh, Acts or the Acts of the Apostles. If we fast forward for a second, we look at what became of Peter, you see it. There is no fisherman on the Sea of Galilee anymore. There is a man who understands his mission and purpose and he's an all bought in. He's all bought into the idea of helping others. Serving others, loving others. At this point in where we're going to pick up the story, Peter is a leader in the church now, and he is a changed man. Jesus, Jesus died, rose again, went up to heaven, Holy Spirit came, and, and Peter is the leader of the church. And he gets arrested shortly after Jesus' uh, resurrection. He gets arrested by the same people who executed Jesus, and they put him on trial. And did he go into that trial with doubt? cowering and fear? He said, no, he didn't. He, he went in there and he said, you all, you leaders who killed Jesus, you messed up when you killed Jesus. You're sinners. You need to repent and put your faith in Christ as your savior. And what was their reaction to this? I love this verse. We've looked at it before. Now, as they, these religious leaders, observe the confidence of Peter. Peter, a fisherman anymore? Uh-uh. And John, and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. They were just humble men. And they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Why was Peter even in this moment, in this place, in time, on trial, being recognized by the elite of the elite for their confidence? Jesus, because bottom-up leadership, because of servant leadership, because of I serve you, you before me, what does love require of me kind of leadership? And it changed everything because Jesus saw potential in Peter and wanted Peter to become more. He invested in Peter. He served Peter, and now Peter was a Christ-like leader. A few years later, they're having this huge debate in the church. How do, we, how do we welcome unchurched people into the church? How do we welcome essentially non-Jewish people into the church? So that would relate today as like non-Christian people into the church. And they were trying to figure out what, what do they need to expect people to do to, to come into the church? And they were debating it. And eventually they turned to Peter in Acts uh, chapter 15. And said, Peter, Peter, what do you think? Peter stood up. And I just, this passage is just so awesome. It's actually just like a part of who we are as a church. He stood up and he said, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles, the unchurched people, the non-Jewish people, the non-religious people, should not make it difficult for them who are turning to God. And so at Infuse Church, we try not to make it difficult. If you're walking into church for the first time in five years, not make it difficult to reconnect because it's already difficult, enough as it is. We're trying to not make it difficult. Why? Because Peter cared so much about everybody else. Peter wanted to help other people experience the life change that he'd found in Jesus. Peter, the fisherman, 
making a decision for the church that has impacted the next two millennia of church existence in this moment. Why? Because Jesus developed, Jesus poured into, and helped serve Peter. Because that's what great leaders do. Great leaders engage, develop others. Great leaders, Christ-like leaders, engage and develop others. Jesus served people. He strengthened them. He worked for them. They didn't work for him. And you can do this too, especially if you consider yourself a Christian. If you don't, you can still take, this is, this is truth, so it's universal. So you can just apply it to your business or your workplace, and it'll work. But don't forget that Jesus had this figured out and taught this thousands of years ago. In fact, when I was doing, like, looking for upside-down org chart graphics, you know, there's all these leadership gurus out there that are saying, this is a new way of leadership. You, you go home and Google this, and they're all out there, like, claiming this is, like, a new thing. And I'm like, no, <laughs> this has been around for a long time. You can do this. You can do this if you help lead others, engage others, develop others for their benefit. Not so that you can make more money. Not so, you know, not, not trying to, you know, lead your children or raise your children so they're less of a bother. But to serve them, to help them. Leaders with ego can't develop and engage other people. Pride doesn't allow it. One way to look at ego is edge God out, E-G-O, edge God out. That's what ego does. It pushes this godly way of leading other people out of the equation, and it prevents true growth from happening. Leaders share the future. Leaders put the right people in the right roles, just like Jesus did with Peter, and they celebrate their strengths. They celebrate them. And Jesus did this with men and women and poured in to change the world. But Taylor, what, what, if, uh, what if I'm not in charge? What if in that hierarchy, you know, I'm at the bottom? How, how do I lead? I can't adjust salaries. I can't do performance review. I'm just a kid. I'm just a teenager. I'm not even in the workplace anymore. I'm retired. How can I be a leader? I'm not the son of God. I get it. But it doesn't mean you can't influence people. It doesn't mean you can't influence people to the point at which they change their behavior. And so a powerful question that I want to give you that we've talked about, and I try to bring it up at least once a year to remind you of it. Very powerful question. You can go into any situation, title or not, and ask the question, how can I help you? This question not only is in service of others, is in help of others, but it flips the paradigm. If you ever feel like you're, you know, acting too much out of ego or pride, it immediately makes it go upside down, so long as you're willing to follow through with it. I mean, what do you think your boss would think if you went in tomorrow morning and said, hey, can I get a second? Sure. How can I help you? I mean, what, what would they do? If you were in their shoes, maybe you are a leader, maybe you have employees, maybe you're a parent. What if your kids went to you and said, Hey, mom, hey, dad, how can I help you? I mean, you'd have a heart attack, but it would feel pretty amazing, wouldn't it? You'd say, whoa, what just happened to my child? What just happened to my son or my daughter? 
Sometimes I think your kids are coming to you and asking you to be a leader and you meet them with something other than how can I help you? I'm not saying I'll do it for you. I'm not saying I'll give you all the answers, but I will help you. How can I help you? It changes the paradigm. It's a very profound and challenging question. I mean, imagine if I would have, if I was at, at Boeing and, and this whole situation with that new dashboard came up, what if those leaders would have come to my teammate and I and, and would have said, instead of stop it, they would have said, how can we help you? Would that have changed the whole situation? Entirely, completely. But pride or fear or status quo wouldn't allow that to happen. Okay, okay, Taylor, well, I could, I could maybe do that, but, but what do I do if, like, you know, somebody doesn't want to come along with me? You know, what if, what if I want to grow or I'm growing or we're moving and they just don't want to move and I'm trying to help, I'm trying to help, I'm trying to help, and, and I really don't think I've talked to people and I'm pretty sure it's not a pride issue, it's not me, you know, limiting them, it, it's, it's just they don't want to move. They don't want help. If you're sure that that's really the case, and it could be, what I'm going to say sounds a little harsh, but it's also true. You moving or your team moving forward and them kind of getting left behind is not your choice. It's their choice. Yeah, but Taylor, Jesus, you know, the lost coin and the lost sheep, and you're supposed to go find the one and bring him back to the 99. Yep, I get that. But if you contextualize the whole thing, there was also the parable of the son, the, the prodigal son. And what did the good father do? When the, when the son wanted to take the money and run, he let him run. And he came walking back one day because he said, this life is not what I want anymore. But what, did it, what needed to happen for that moment to take place? The father had to say to the son, well, we're gonna keep going, but if you wanna go a different direction, I bless that. Did he get all the money back? Nope. Was it all perfect in the end? No. But he made a choice to stay behind. And you can't drag someone that doesn't want to move. That's not great servant leadership. They'll figure it out. And sometimes being left behind gives you the motivation to say, this isn't what I want anymore. If you do this out of love, it will work out. Because one day they will be ready for something more than likely new. And then you will have the opportunity for that, that person that was left behind as a Christ-like leader to engage and develop them. They'll be open to it. They'll be humble and hungry for it because that's what Christ-like leaders do. They engage and develop others. If you just go out, challenge you tonight, you know, you don't even have to read the whole one of the gospels. One of the accounts of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just open your Bible, might be the first time in a long time, just open it up and read it through the lens of how many times Jesus engages and develops other people and see what you find. Because I bet it's a lot. It's more than you think. And that's what we as Christians, as Christ-like leaders, because we're all leaders, should be doing. Because let's be honest, that's what we want to have happen in our workplaces, in our families, in our small groups, in our communities. We want that to happen to us too. So somebody's got to start it. Somebody's got to create the domino effect. Somebody's got to go out there and be that Christ-like leader 
who engages and serves others for their benefit, for their growth. And it'll start to make a difference. It'll grow you. When you start growing other people, it'll grow you too. So don't be afraid. It takes work. It's hard, but it's well worth it. And that's what a Christ-like leader would do. If you would, bow your heads, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know there's... um, Lord, we know there's a lot of tough situations out there. We know there's a lot of tough people out there who may not always want to listen, who may not want to hear, who may not want to grow. For that matter, a lot of our own egos, a lot of our own pride can get in the way of us being a Christ-like leader, being a leader who serves others, who loves others, who puts others first, who are willing to let go of our ego and see the responsibility of our role flip upside down, to strive to be at the back of the line, to strive to be at the bottom of the totem pole like your son was for us. So Lord, help our hearts and our eyes and our minds and our ears be open to this truth to leading in a new way, to leading our families in a new way, to leading our organizations in a new way, to lead our little small slice of the world in a new way, to lead like your son led for us. Someone who puts their life on the line for others so that they may have life. That's the kind of leader you are. And that's the leader that we should become. Help us to hear what we need to hear, to learn what we need to learn. Help us to be hungry to become that kind of a person. Give us the wisdom and the strength to do that. Not just this week, but for the rest of our lives. In your name I pray, amen.